The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks searching for direction after their worst day in nearly a month. Technology coming off a nearly 2% loss on its own. Call it peak inflation. A new note from Goldman Sachs says the worst is behind us. But that does not mean the Fed is about to slow down anytime soon. Breaking this morning, big news from the largest chip maker in the world on a multi-billion dollar investment right here in America. News one CEO says is a game changer for the industry. Plus, amid the collapse of FTX, one investment bank is on the hunt for deals in crypto. And then later on, Beijing easing COVID zero rules even more overnight to mixed reception from investors. It's Tuesday, December 6th, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I'm Dominic Chu right here at CNBC Global Headquarters. Brian Sullivan is live in Rotterdam in the Netherlands as part of his week-long series on Europe's energy crisis. Brian. Yeah, Dom. Hey, and, you know, it's not just about Europe, though. It's about the U.S. It's about the world as well. And it was interesting you led the show with Goldman Sachs saying the worst of inflation may be behind us. That may be true in the United States. I'm not so sure that's true for Europe. And maybe as goes Europe goes, so goes parts of the world. Remember, Europe, this is the third biggest combined economy. you got the U.S., you got China, and then the EU, third biggest in the world. This matters a lot. All right. Yesterday, Dom, we talked all about oil, OPEC, the sanctions. Today, we are going to focus on a more crucial commodity, and that is natural gas. Natural gas literally powers and heats Europe. Now, last year, before the war, you had about 155 billion cubic meters of Russian gas get pipelined in. What does that mean? Well, we're going to talk about it all day long, put these giant numbers in context, because now that 155, Dom, has come down to just 11 billion cubic meters. In other words, there is a massive gap going into next year. This year, storage is good. And part of our story is what I'll call the Marshall Plan for Energy. That is an LNG tanker. Now, that is not from the U.S. That actually, that ship I tracked on marine traffic came in from Norway. But there is a U.S. ship not far behind us, right off in the North Sea. We're going to talk all day about the role of U.S. natural gas, how many of those Europe is going to need, the winners, name some stocks, and talk about everything we need to know about the gas side. And what I think is probably, Dom, if I may say so, and I had nothing to do with it, the coolest live shot of the day on CNBC. I challenge anybody to challenge this. I love it. You're also dressed very appropriately given the weather and everything else out there right now. I'm digging the jacket. Yeah, and there's a seal. There's a seal here. You know, he was admiring the logo. All right, Brian Sullivan, thanks very much. We'll, We'll see you later on in the program. Let's get right to the market action right now, kicking off the hour with a check on U.S. equity futures. After a rough session yesterday that saw the S&P and Nasdaq fall nearly 2% on the day, 
Right now, the Dow is implied higher by a very modest 20-some points, but it's still in the green. The S&P is implied higher by roughly three points, and the Nasdaq by about 15. But again, after yesterday's losses, it might be a small victory. Checking on the bond market right now with yields in focus because they drove a lot of the action in yesterday's trading. The benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury note yield just currently around 5.78%. The two-year note yield about 4.37%, and the 30-year long bond 4 three point rather six zero percent and in cryptocurrencies bitcoin and ether tough to tell whether they're risk assets right now or not risk assets regardless we are still seeing bitcoin above sixteen thousand sixteen thousand nine fifty four the last trade there up about two tenths of one percent about a similar percentage decline for ethereum currently at one thousand two hundred and fifty three dollars and change Let's get a check on the overnight action in Asia and the early trading action in Europe. I see our Juliana Tattlebaum. She is standing by in London with our latest there. Good morning, Juliana. Good morning, Dom. Well, despite the weak session on Wall Street yesterday, Asian markets hold up, held up fairly well. It was a mixed trading session. The Shanghai Composite in mainland China trading marginally higher. We are looking at reports that a national relaxation of the COVID rules could be on the horizon as soon as tomorrow. We also had some rolling back of the restrictions in Beijing and Shanghai, a story that has been gaining momentum over the last couple of weeks. So perhaps already priced into markets, given the muted reaction, Hang Seng underperformed, dropping about 0.4%. Would also bring your attention to Australia. The Australian market getting getting, uh, sold off a little bit overnight, down 0.5%. The Reserve Bank of Australia delivered its third consecutive rate hike overnight. That brings the rate to 3.1%, the highest level since 2012. So yet another central bank tightening policy. As for European markets, here's the picture. We've got to red across the board. It's been a fairly downbeat session, extending the losses we saw yesterday. The main Benchmark stock 600 dropped 0.4% yesterday, its second negative session in a row. But as you can see, fairly contained in terms of the magnitude of the pullback. Dom? Juliana Tattlebaum, live in London with the latest there. Thank you very much. Let's get to some of this morning's top corporate stories and kick things off with some breaking news. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Good morning, Silvana. Dom, good morning to you. So that's right. Breaking right now, Taiwan Semiconductor, the world's largest computer chip maker, says it's tripling its initial investment in the U.S., promising to spend $40 billion on not one, but two new manufacturing hubs in Phoenix, Arizona. The White House says the plants should satisfy demand for high-performance chips across the country by 2026. Today, Apple CEO Tim Cook, who counts as TSMC as a key supplier for its iPhones, will stand alongside President Biden, Taiwan Semi-founder Morris Chang, Micron CEO Sanjay Marodra, NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang, and AMD CEO Lisa Su at an event in Phoenix to mark the occasion. Elsewhere, Beijing further easing its COVID-0 policies overnight. The city will no longer require residents to show proof of a negative COVID test before entering commercial buildings and supermarkets, as well as, quote, all kinds of public spaces. The announcement comes one day after a similar move in Shanghai, the country's most populous city. And Goldman Sachs reportedly plans to spend tens of millions of dollars to buy or invest in crypto companies. According to Reuters, the move comes amid the collapse of FTX and subsequent re-evaluation of the entire crypto sector. Goldman says FTX's implosion has heightened the need for more trustworthy regulated cryptocurrency players, and big banks could be the ones to fill that role, Dom. All right, Silvana Hinao, thank you very much for those headlines. Back to the broader markets now, with stocks seeing marginal gains before the opening bell after yesterday's steep sell-off. Investors looking ahead to more economic data this morning. 
for insight into the strength of the U.S. economy as Wall Street gears up for another Fed policy meeting next week. This, as Goldman Sachs is out with a new note last night, saying it believes the peak for core PCE inflation is behind us, with an inflation target of 5.9% this year and then 3.2% next year. It's a pretty big drop-off. Let's talk more about this with Joanna Gallegos, the co-founder of Bond Blocks, a fixed-income ETF. Also, Nathan, Nathan Toft, he's the chief investment officer at Manulife Investment Management. Thank you both for being here right now. Joanna, perhaps we'll start with you. I, I mentioned the PCE data. I mentioned Goldman's call on maybe perhaps peak inflation. The worst is behind us. All of this is setting up for a good storyline for markets, but it didn't seem to be read that way yesterday. What exactly is the take going forward? Yeah, I think there's a lot coming with the Fed's actions next week. And what has been clear this year, and I think will continue, is despite some new estimates of of where we might land, the Fed's going to continue to raise rates to combat inflation until they get to their targets. So volatility will persist in our markets going forward. And I think more more so than now, the markets have really absorbed a lot of rate change over this year. And in 2023, Investors in fixed income markets can be positioned very differently than they were in 2022. So no matter what the Fed does or says next week, I think what matters is that there's an incredible amount of opportunity in the bond market that hasn't existed um, for decades um, for investors' portfolios. It, It seems, Nathan, as though many investors, maybe at least some of them, have seized on some of the opportunities of this big investment opportunity that Joanna speaks of, because I remember seeing a 10-year Treasury note yield at around four and a quarter percent. It's been bought all the way down to closer to three and a half percent at this point. It seems as though there's a, a, a mood developing that says, hey, you know what, if I can get risk-free money at four plus percent, I'll take it. Is that the way we're, we should view things in the coming months as we head towards 2023? We've definitely seen a move, and we're hearing from our clients, too, that you know yields at these levels are getting increasingly attractive at seemingly potentially less risk than they could find elsewhere in the marketplace. So the attractiveness is there. Um, and the reality is the, the volatility is also still there to an extent, although I would say volatility in the fixed income markets has come down some. Uh, but we are still seeing some pretty sizable moves on a daily basis. And, and we still believe that a lot of central banks, including the Fed, is quite highly dependent on data. And so while inflation may have peaked in the U.S., it is a really big question as to how sticky for how long and how long will it take for the Fed to decide before they can actually go in the other direction when it comes to monetary policy. So there's still quite a few questions out there, despite attractiveness that we're starting to see in some of the the fixed income interest rate environment. Nathan, questions are one thing, but you're a chief investment officer at Manulife. I mean, it's your idea, it's your job to look at those questions and try to answer them and make an investment strategy for them. So what exactly then do you do, Nathan, given that outlook that you've just pointed out? Yeah, we are definitely bringing up our duration in our portfolios for for quite some time this year, and including the later part of last year, we were pretty underweight the broad um, duration dynamics in the marketplace, as well as credit exposure in our portfolios. But now we're much more closer to neutral. So we are bringing up the duration of our portfolios to take advantage of some of the opportunities that we're seeing. And in particular, we think the investment grade markets are a reasonably safe bet to be. There's still some uncertainty in our view on the 
lower quality stuff out there, um, just given the nature of the recessionary dynamics that we might see in the coming year. But I would say, generally speaking, credit has held up pretty well because the, the baseline in our view is that while there may be recessionary dynamics globally that are kind of rolling across regions, the severity of that really isn't the question. It's really about the duration of how long we'll be in a slower growth environment. So, Joanna, I mean, Nathan brings up an, an interesting point. We, we've been focused very much, and, and rightfully so, on risk-free rates, the U.S. Treasury yield curve and everything else happening there. But we should be looking perhaps at other places down the credit spectrum, investment-grade corporates, maybe even junk, maybe even municipal bonds. Where do you think those opportunities present themselves most profoundly in the coming quarters here? Yeah, we think there's a lot of opportunity for outperformance in the bond markets. And we think that as people start to reallocate, there's a huge shift in reallocation of fixed income coming. And as they step into risk assets, specifically in credit, we think high quality, high yield is actually a place that is is somewhere to, to, to take a look. So single Bs, we call it the Goldilocks of high yield. It's less rate sensitive than double Bs. Um, and it also has less idiosyncratic risk than triple C's. So we think that there are spots. If you pick your spots in credit um, and also across different sectors in, in high yield, um, energy, um, consumer industrials uh, have really st- have a lot of strength in their balance sheets. You know, there, there are spots to enter into the risk markets and you um, can consider doing that now that we've moved through such a huge shift. And, you know, it's November and we've been experiencing this volatility and these rate increases. And it does seem like some of the table is set for 2023 in fixed income and bond markets. All right. We'll make that the last word. Joanna Gallegos, also Nathan Nathan Toth. Thank you both very much. We appreciate it. When we come back on the show, much more on Taiwan Semiconductor's $40 billion U.S. investment and what it means for Apple's global supply chain. Plus, Why Europe's energy crisis may be far from over with question marks on how the continent will make it through 2023 and beyond. And then later on, it's not just tech. Big layoffs coming to the consumer staples industry as well. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange and back to this week's continuing coverage of Europe's energy crisis, one that could tilt not just the continent, but the entire world into a possible recession. Brian Sullivan is back now. He joins us from Rotterdam in the Netherlands with more on that story. Brian. Yeah, and I think, listen, Dom, I I think there's, there's a narrative and we talked about it a bit yesterday, but if you didn't see it yesterday, I'll repeat myself, which is there's a bit of a narrative that everything is fine in Europe because their storage 
is filled up or got filled up more than they expected. Well, that's true for this year, and that's good. And it was in large part due to quick thinking by countries like Germany getting some floating regasification LNG units, but also getting really lucky with the weather. October was the warmest October in Germany in 140 years. Mother Nature supremely cooperated. The risk is going into next year. Here's why. Okay, and here's the numbers and what we're going to talk about all day on CNBC. More than half of all the storage I just referenced, Dom, came from Russian pipeline gas. Pretty much all of it, not quite, there's like a tiny bit coming through, pretty much all of it is offline. So now you've got this huge gap going into next year. Okay, all the Russian gas, it's half. Demand destruction, cutting off industry, that's going to take away a bunch of that. that. That's a positive thing. But let's do the numbers very quickly. Okay, so the IEA says a gap of about 30 billion cubic meters for next year. What does that mean? We're dealing with big numbers. I feel like Carl Sagan, billions and billions, billions of cubic meters. Here's the, here's the very basic thing, Dom. That ship behind us here, about 10 of those is 1 billion cubic meter. So if there's a gap of 30 billion cubic meters or more, the math says you'd need at least 300 more of those in addition to the ones that are already coming in order to fill that gap. That number, by the way, Dom, is not possible, but that gives you an idea as to the scale of what Europe is dealing with. And that 30 may be a conservative estimate. Uh, Brian, so with those numbers, they are staggering. And, and we know even if we wanted to build capacity to a point where we could fill those gaps, it could take years and maybe a decade to get the infrastructure up in place to get that thing going. I, I wonder, you mentioned that the, the ship behind you is not an American vessel. I'm curious, though, nope. what the possibility is for an American opportunity for liquefied natural gas going to places around the world like Europe. How equipped is the U.S. energy and energy infrastructure currently to be able to fill at least some of that gap that we have in Europe right now with LNG? It's equipped well enough, and I, you nailed all the salient points. It is growing, but these are giant projects that will take years, okay? And I'm a tip of the cap, theoretical cap, because I'm not wearing one, uh, although I wish I was, to the industry, which we did not have an LNG export industry, Dom, about 10 years ago. Now we've built it out enough with Chenier, with Tellurian, with Venture Global, with uh, Tellurian still working, Semper Energy, Cove Point, which is owned by Berkshire Hathaway as well, Exxon, they're building a giant one, Golden Pass in, in uh, Texas, which is actually a joint venture with the country of Qatar. An industry that did not exist effectively 10 years ago is now already big enough that I'm not going to say that the U.S. is saving Europe Okay, that's a little bit jingoistic, but I will say if it wasn't for U.S. liquefied natural gas, maybe not that ship, but the one that's probably coming in right behind it, which will probably be from Corpus Christi or Plaquemines Parish, Louisiana, Dom, if it wasn't for those ships, honestly, what would Europe do? They're, they're already talking about, you know, reducing, wearing more sweaters, turning the heat down, turning the heat off, people getting laid off because of industry. So. The, the U.S. natural gas industry is building out. It's big. It's getting bigger. Chenier, they're adding another layer. Tellurian, they're building out. Venture Global, they're private. Freeport LNG should come back online. 
They're building it out. It will take a long time. The question is, what happens 10 years from now? Yeah. What happens next year? A lot of questions. We'll try to answer them today. It will be a big political issue, I'm sure, here in the U.S. as well, not just an economic one with regard to what we and do here. With, and exactly, here too. with carbon carbon fuels and whatnot. All right, Brian, thank you very much. We'll see you later on in the show. Still on deck here, your money and the big money movers this morning, plus the mystery chart, as you see there, revealed with a stock that's up more than 8% ahead of the opening bell. Up big. We'll see what it is when Worldwide Exchange is back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to the show. Time now for your big money movers, some stock stories of the morning. We've got shares right now of GitLab surging ahead of the opening bell. The software maker posting a narrower per share loss than expected sales topping estimates as well. GitLab is issuing strong outlooks for the current quarter and the full year. Also, Textron popping this morning. The defense contractor announcing it's been awarded a key development contract for the U.S. Army's future long-range assault aircraft program, the branch's longest helicopter deal in 40 years, worth up to $1.3 billion. The contract's set to replace roughly 2,000 Blackhawk helicopters and 1,200 Apache attack helicopters by the year 2030. Those shares up about 8%. And Jack Dorsey's block is among the companies contributing to a funding round for an Africa-based Bitcoin miner that relies 100% on renewable energy. Block will join a U.S. Stillmark on a $2 million seed investment in Gridless. One of the hopes it will have will, it will spur more investment in the region's energy infrastructure. So Block shares up about two-thirds of 1%. Now, as we head out to break, watching shares of Tesla after yesterday's more than 6% drop on news, it is cutting output at its Shanghai factory due to falling demand in China this morning. And if you haven't already done so, please follow our podcast, Worldwide Exchange, in audio format. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Pick or choose which one you want to hear, but Worldwide Exchange is in audio format. We'll be right back. Stocks looking to shake off the new trading week's steep sell-off over growing fears around the Fed's upcoming interest rate hiking cycle. Futures are losing steam right now. Breaking news as the world's largest chip, computer chip maker reveals it's tripling its investment in the United States in what's being touted as a game-changing move for the industry. And PepsiCo reportedly set to become the latest major corporation to slash jobs as growing worries around the economy continue to take a toll on companies around the world. It's Tuesday, December 6th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Chu at CNBC Global Headquarters right here in New Jersey. Brian Sullivan is standing by in the Rotterdam, Netherlands region. We'll get much more on Brian from just a moment as you see him there. But first, let's kick off this half hour with U.S. stock futures. Pointed to some green at least about 15, 20 minutes ago, now we've drifted into negative territory. The Dow is implied lower by roughly 20 points. 
The S&P down by two to three points and the Nasdaq just about flat on the session, just marginally right now, about a point or so in the red or green, depending on which tick you look at. Now, in the bond market, yields are in focus. They're ticking lower, 3.57 percent for the benchmark U.S. Treasury 10-year note yield. The two-year note yield just a hair below 4.37%. Let's also hit oil prices right now. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate or WTI prices down about one and a third percent, $75.86. Ice Brent crude, the world benchmark gauge, down about one and a half percent as well, $81.52 the last trade there. Let's get a check on some of the morning's top stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Dom. Well, Rupert Murdoch is reportedly said to be deposed as part of Dominion Voting System's lawsuit against Fox News. According to The Washington Post, Murdoch is set to appear before Dominion's attorneys next week via video conference. The questioning is a part of the company's defamation lawsuit against Murdoch's Fox News, seeking more than $1 billion over allegations the news outlet and its on-air personalities fueled false claims Dominion engaged in voter fraud that rigged the 2020 election. The Fox Corp chairman is the highest profile individual to be questioned in the case. Elon Musk's Neuralink is reportedly under federal investigation. According to Reuters, the medical device company is facing a probe by the Department of Agriculture over concerns about the well-being of animals. The report says that since 2018, roughly 1,500 animals have been killed in testing for the company's brain implant. Reuters adds the investigation comes amid internal staff complaints that its animal testing is being rushed. And PepsiCo is reportedly planning to to cut hundreds of corporate jobs in North America. According to the Wall Street Journal, the layoffs will impact employees in its food and beverage divisions in Chicago, Plano, Texas, and Purchase, New York. The journal adds Pepsi's beverage unit is expected to be hit harder by the cuts because the snack unit already shrank its workforce through a voluntary retirement program. The company did not immediately respond to a request for comment from CNBC, Dom. So As you see, the stock pretty not doing too much in pre-market. Okay, Salvan Hinao, thank you very much for that. Now to that breaking news in Taiwan Semiconductor announcing it is dramatically increasing its investment in the U.S. and manufacturing chips in this country. Christina Partsinevelis joins us now with more on that story, the details, and TSMC's plans. Christina, good morning. Yeah, good morning. Well, we can call it Made in America with the help of Taiwan. Taiwan Semiconductor is tripling its initial investment, promising to spend $40 billion on not one, but two new semiconductor manufacturing hubs, also known as FABs in Phoenix, Arizona. The first Phoenix FAB is already under construction and will now produce even more advanced chips, four nanometers, instead of the original five nanometer promise. The second FAB will produce three nanometer chips. This just means faster power efficiency and computing performance. The White House promising that the combination of both TSMC fabs should satisfy the demand for high-performance chips across the United States by 2026, that's four years from now, and create at least 10,000 high-tech jobs as well as 10,000 construction jobs just over the next four years. Apple is already a TSMC customer and has been using these five nanometer chips for the past three generation of iPhones. Today, Apple's Tim Cook will accompany President Biden at a press conference at the Phoenix Arizona Fab. The CEOs of both NVIDIA and AMD will also be attending to discuss their partnerships with TSMC. NVIDIA's CEO sharing these comments with me, quote, bringing TSMC's investment to the United States is a masterstroke and a game-changing development for the industry. And we should be expecting their comments just uh, around 3 p.m. or this afternoon. 
Christina, uh, can, can you stay right there for a moment here? Let's bring in our Steve Kovac into the conversation as well. Steve, our big tech correspondent, we've, we've been following reports. Apple's been looking to diversify away from China. I mean, we know why <laughs> they've shut things down over there for a good swath of the last couple of years. What does this morning's announcement mean for Tim Cook and company over at Apple? Yeah, Dom, this is just the latest beat in that story that we've been hearing about Apple making these attempts to diversify outside of China and Taiwan. So what this would do is give uh, Apple more capacity to make these chips outside of Taiwan. One thing that I read into this uh, decision, Dom, was, look, if these if tensions between China and Taiwan get worse at some point in the future and that makes it harder for Apple to have TSMC fab its chips over there, this can kind of relieve some of that pressure. What we're seeing today, Dom, with iPhones is because there's so many Apple basically put all its eggs in the Chinese basket. And with those protests and shutdowns in Zhengzhou, where most of the iPhones are actually made, we're seeing just a huge impact there of their ability to get uh, enough supply out to meet demand in time for the holidays. And you can see that if that hits their chips business as well sometime in the future, uh, they're going to be in trouble. So this will expand their capacity, maybe not necessarily enough so to wean them completely off the reliance of TSMC's facility in Taiwan but it will at least alleviate the pressure. And that's what we're seeing, Dom, is all of these little different pressure points throughout Apple's supply chain and where they're uh, moving towards. India is one big place to relieve that pressure in order to take some of the pressure off of China, Dom. It may or may not cost a little bit more, but that cost that is probably insurance cost right now. It's hedging, if you will, exactly. for that manufacturing. Christina, Taiwan Semi is citing the CHIPS Act, but no money has been distributed just yet, right? Yeah, and it's the interesting thing because the press release went out and Taiwan Semiconductor uh, talked about the CHIPS Act, which is worth $52 billion, and then they're not the only one. You had Intel do the exact same thing, Micron, uh, Samsung. The CHIPS Act funding comes from the federal government. They're only going to start taking applications for the CHIPS Act in uh, the next year, early next year, the first quarter of next year. So we have to keep in mind that a lot of these companies that are going to be building, they're already getting money and subsidies from the state level. So it's just an interesting way to look at it because I thought, hey, they're already setting the CHIPS Act, but they're not actually getting the money. And so the government still has a lot of work to do, still has to go through all the applications and decide which companies are going to get the money, even though many of these companies have already made massive billion-dollar promises like TSMC today at $40 billion building two fabs in Phoenix, Arizona, Dom. And, and Steve, uh, I will give you the last word here. That These are not easy projects or, or, or very short projects to put together. Shifting global supply chains for a company like Apple could take years to, 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 to come to fruition. What kind of chatter are you hearing from the industry right now about just how long it would take until big tech companies feel comfortable with a more diversified supply chain that's getting built up right now. Yeah, Dom. I mean, TSMC itself is saying it's going to take longer than expected and be more expensive than expected because of just those challenges of building in the United States. They put, they put a letter out with the Commerce Department saying, look, it's we don't have the engineering talent in the United States. They're actually having to import that engineering talent from Taiwan to the United States to do that. Even some equipment, they said, is either too expensive or you just can't procure it here. So that just speaks to the challenges that China is uniquely capable of spinning up these kind of factories and production facilities that the United States and maybe some other countries that Apple would look to to diversify its supply chain just can't do. But the date right now we're hearing is 2024. So it's still going to be a couple years before we even see the first chips rolling off the line for Apple devices, Dom. Well, what we have seen with COVID zero in China is they've given 
the rest of the world and the U.S. included a bit of a head start on trying to get some of those things done. Right. Uh, Christina Partzinevelis, thank you very much. Steve Kovac, to you as well. Coming up on the show, the race to secure natural gas in Europe as temperatures begin to drop across the region. Our Brian Sullivan is live in Rotterdam in the Netherlands with a closer look at where supplies stand. Brian. Yeah, and one of the hardest things to understand about this story, Dom, I mean, it is a big story. We're dealing with billions and trillions and some very big numbers. And an analyst who has helped me and CNBC make sense of it all, as well as anybody else, Baraj Bokateri of RBC Capital Markets, he'll be along next. We'll speak to him about where Europe really stands, maybe some of the companies that he likes or doesn't like now. That is next, right here from the Port of Rotterdam and a truly worldwide exchange. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get the latest on Europe's energy crisis and the situation with the supply of natural gas on the continent. Brian Sullivan joins us again from the port of Rotterdam in the Netherlands with a guest. Brian. Yeah, I know I'm not on camera because I wanted to show the rainbow, Dom. I just felt like, you know, there's been so much bad news around Europe. We have a rainbow literally going over an LNG tanker that is in port here in Holland. I mean, you couldn't we couldn't, this is not a, like, fake backdrop. You could not have planned this any better for a nice morning here and a little bit of optimism what's been a real gloomy time and make it worse next year. Okay, so let's talk more about exactly where we stand. And I want to make something very clear about these numbers, guys, for everything that we talk about in the interview we're about to do. These are gigantic numbers. These are complicated figures. They involve a lot of supply deltas, right, variables. They involve a lot of demand destruction estimates exactly how much is being used. So even the smartest and the best and the brightest in the private sector or the government sector can often have a hard time understanding exactly how this all may end up. There are no absolutes. With that in mind, I want to bring in a guest, Baraj Bokateria, who is an analyst at RBC Capital Markets. We met in London uh, last year. Baraj, welcome back to the program. He has been, uh, you have been instrumental in helping me and therefore our audience sort of understand exactly where we are. Can you give us kind of the lay of the land? Because these are some gigantic numbers. Where exactly the the supply, demand, and storage situation for gas stands for Europe heading into next year? Yeah, sure. No, thanks for having me on. So I guess the first point to, to mention is that storage in Europe is basically full. Uh, and that's been the key priority um, for, for most of this year post uh, the invasion. One of the, the key challenges here is can you fill storage when you lose 160 BCM of, of Russian gas? And we lost about half of that uh, this year. Most of that's been made up for with LNG. Um, you've also seen some uh, demand destruction come through across the industrial side and also on the residential side. Um, as we're looking into 2023, uh, one of the challenges this year, next year that won't be pre- wasn't present this year is that Russian gas is basically at minimal levels. Um, so it'll be even harder to fill storage in 2023 than it was in 2022. Yeah, and and that's such the key part of the story, is it not, Barrage? Which is that, what is it, maybe half or a little more than half of the current storage levels, which are nearly full, which is great, they came from mostly pipelined Russian gas, with the exception of a small pipeline. What is it, you know, in the southern part of Europe, almost all of that is cut off. The IEA says that there's probably a 30 BCM, billion cubic meter gap. I'm sure we could get to a bigger number than that. Do you, do you have an idea of where you stand on that figure? 
Yeah, so uh, this year you've got about 70 BCM of, of Russian gas coming to Europe, mostly in the first half of the year. If you take the current run rates, you're more like something like 10 or 15 BCM for 2023. So it's, it's a much larger gap, close to 50 BCM. And that will have to be offset with even lower demand or more LNG uh, or a combination of, of other things. Yeah, demand destruction. And to put this into perspective for our audience, we tried to get the, and again, no absolutes because there are different size ships, but we're talking about one BCM would be, according to Chenier and Venture Global and Tellurian, they all kind of confirmed that it would take 10 of those ships, 10 to 12, to get to about one BCM. So with a gap barrage of 30, if the IA is right, that's 300 to 360. If you're at a gap of 70, that's what, seven to 800 more of these LNG ships, they don't exist. The import capacity for that level doesn't exist. Where does Europe get the gas? So again, in addition to filling the storage uh, this year, one of the key priorities has been to increase the capabilities of, of importing uh, more gas. So you're seeing more uh, regas terminals being built, uh, more permitting and so on. And, and um, Netherlands is a good example. You had a one startup recently. Um, and you're seeing more of that elsewhere in Europe. Um, the other thing I, we should highlight is one of the reasons the gas market is so tight this year is, is French nuclear has been quite disappointing. And you could assume some kind of reversion next year in a, in a more positive case. And hydro has also been uh, disappointing this year. So there's been a number of pressures yeah. on the gas market all combined to create the situation we're in. Uh, I got to imagine covering energy, global majors, particularly in, in Europe right now, Barrage has got to be one heck of a job. We'll leave it with this. Can you give us some ideas, some companies that you have buy ratings on that you like, given all the everything that you know and everything you've talked about and written about, are there companies that are going to prosper either through renewables, nat gas, or some combination of the above? Yeah, I mean, as a sector, the integrated energy majors are definitely going to be present uh, through the transition. Our top pick in the sector is Shell, number one LNG player globally. Okay. Uh, trading this year has been a bit hit and miss. I think volatility is beyond what has been helpful. Uh, but actually, as you're looking more structurally, you end up with higher prices and more volatility, and they should be able to benefit over the medium term uh, from that trend. Well, uh, you had no way to know this, Barrage. I don't think we talked about it, but you may have just previewed our coverage tomorrow talking about the transition, renewables, and maybe talking a lot about a company with a yellow seashell logo. Maybe, possibly. Barrage Bukateri of RBC Capital Markets laying it out, putting it into perspective. Really appreciate your insight, Barrage. Couldn't have done it without you. Thank you very much. Dom, I'm, I'm going to send it. Thank you. Dom, I'm going to send it back to you. And again, I just want to make it very clear all day here. These numbers are gigantic. There are no absolutes. Weather changes, supplies change, demand changes as well. So what we're going to do today is try to lay out the best we can, the macro scenario, and also just show off some giant ships and maybe some rainbows. Dom, why not? You got a lot of visuals there for sure. Brian Sullivan, thank you very much for the interview there. We'll see you later on this morning. On deck for the show here, stocks looking to get back on track as the Fed's looming rate decision hangs over investors. We lay out what to watch in the trading day ahead. And coming up, Squawk Box is live from Washington, D.C. with a huge, huge exclusive lineup from the Business Roundtable featuring the CEOs of Honeywell, United Airlines, Union Pacific, General Motors, Walmart, J.P. Morgan Chase, Raytheon, and more. It all starts at the top of the hour, 
a.m. Eastern time. Must watch interviews all day. Keep it right here. Worldwide Exchange is back in just a moment. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Here's what's on the agenda for investors today. At 8.30 a.m. Eastern time, we get the October trade deficit numbers. On the earnings front, we'll hear from AutoZone, Toll Brothers, and Dave and & Buster's. We're also watching, by the way, what's happening in Georgia, the state of in the United States, as Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker go head-to-head once again in that state's Senate runoff election. A lot of stuff on a lot of different fronts there today. Let's get back to the markets and how your trading day is shaping up right now. It's been a little bit back and forth, but it's marginal either way, up or down. The Dow is implied lower by roughly 20 points. It was implied higher by 20 points just at the beginning of this hour. Joining me now is Adele Zaman, partner with the Wall Street Alliance Group, uh, with some thoughts on the market here. Adele, I I wonder whether or not this is a market after yesterday's price action that saw decided downside that indicates that we could see more downside ahead. Great to uh, be with you, Dominic. So for, for us, the, what the market is telling us, uh, especially with these recent movements, is that I think the market is realizing this is not an Armageddon, right? The consumer seems to be in relatively good shape. If you look at Cyber Monday sales, they hit a record of $11.3 billion. And uh, if you look at, uh, you know, tech is laying off workers, but at the same time, leisure and hospitality is gobbling up workers keeping unemployment at a historic low of 3.7%. And this recession, if any, is Fed-induced. And Paul has indicated that he's going to be relatively accommodative. So we are of the school of thought that we feel that this market is probably going to be range-bound over here. But we will see opportunities, and we will also see vulnerabilities. Opportunities is what I want to focus on. We we kind of understand what the vulnerabilities are right now. They're tied to rates. They're tied to growth prospects, recession, and some of the companies that don't do as well when interest rates go higher. Opportunistically, Adele, if you look at where things have shaped up, there's an argument to be made that a lot of the momentum value parts of the sector, like energy, have run a lot. Are they still values? Meanwhile, many of the growth companies have sold off tremendously. Technology stocks, big tech, media and telecom, are they now value stocks? How exactly as a uh, stock picker, a portfolio manager, are you supposed to kind of distinguish between the two? What is value and what is growth? So uh, so we we seeing a lot of opportunities here. Uh, Definitely, we agree that the high growth areas of the market, there is vulnerability there. Uh, because if the one-year T-bill is giving you a risk-free return of 4.6%, it becomes very difficult to justify investing in a company for some prospects of future growth. The opportunity we are seeing is, uh, you mentioned energy, we think we are very constructive on that sector. Because of geopolitical constraints and because of uh, OPEC limiting production, we feel there'll be supply constraints there. But the demand we see is continuing to skyrocket. You know, by 2045, we anticipate that the world economy is going to more than double and the transition away from fossil fuel is going to take time. So for that reason, we think oil prices are headed higher, which is tremendously good for large oil companies. You mentioned about th- there being a rally in that space. Um, if you look at a stock like ExxonMobil, which is on our watch list, their break even on oil is about $41 a barrel. So with oil trading at $75 a barrel, that's tremendously profitable for them. And that stock is up more than 70% year to date, but still is trading at less than nine times earnings, which is not very expensive and pays an attractive dividend. All right. And, and, and just out of curiosity, before we let you go, we have a few moments left, Adele. 
Is big tech a buy right now? So we do think that some of the big tech we are constructive on because we feel that here it's value disguised as growth. You know, if you look at a, another company on our watch list, Alphabet, that stock is down about 30% year to date and is trading at less than 19 times earnings. For us, that's more of a value play than a growth play. And here we have a company where the sum of the parts is greater than the whole, where they're doing extremely well in search, they're, do- they're growing rapidly in cloud, and where companies like Netflix are just now trying to figure out how to monetize advertising. YouTube clocked in north of $7 billion in advertising revenue in the third quarter. All right. Adele Zaman, Wall Street Alliance Group, thank you very much for the stock picks. Energy and Alphabet, we appreciate it. Let's get back now to Brian Sullivan, live in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, with a look at a very busy day and week ahead. And Brian, it's not just about the World Cup there. It's very much about the energy outlook. I know. I've been having to deal with the, the, the Dutch here, our, our new friends, talking about the soccer game. Excuse me, football game, but uh, go Netherlands, I guess. All right, so let's wrap it up for this hour. We'll be back on Squawk Box in a few minutes. Here, here's the reality, folks. Europe going into next year, very different scenarios. The IEA coming out with a bunch of different scenarios on where storage levels may last. Remember, last summer, the price of natural gas effectively went to 90 dollars equivalent we're paying six or seven in the u.s they were paying 90 because everybody was trying to race to fill storage depending on how much demand destruction there really is this year the iea's got a bunch of different scenarios worst case scenario is there on the far right which is basically zero as they go to refill bottom line dom got a lot of friends here in europe and uh they're going to be facing a tough six months maybe a tough 12 months and looking ahead we just got lucky over my shoulder here That is the future. That is a ship carrying wind turbine blades. They build these funky looking ships. One just came by us here, Dom, in the port of Rotterdam, Netherlands, and our great uh, boat pilot here, Wesley, taking us up. All day tomorrow, we're gonna be talking more about the renewable side of things. There are things renewables can do very well. There are things they cannot replace. We're gonna connect the dots as well. So today, it's gonna be all about natural gas, where Europe stands tomorrow. I don't know, maybe we'll get to get on one of those boats, Dom. What do you think? Giant wind turbine blade ships here at the Port of Rotterdam all day long. I think it's an important story, and it's not just a Europe story. It's a U.S. and a global story as well. We'll name names in the U.S. that may benefit. Something, something tells me, Brian, that if you wanted to get on a vessel that was doing something, anything that you wanted, you could find it in Rotterdam because it is one of the busiest ports in the world carrying all kinds of stuff. But before we let you go, we've just got a few moments left here, Brian. Can you tell us what has been the most exciting thing that you've seen so far in your European trip? Well, okay. besides the one goal we scored in the game where I had about 100 angry and and semi-drunk Dutch guys give me the evil eye, and I almost thought about ditching out of the the place where I was. Luckily, I'm I'm still here. I, I think, listen, the whole thing is just trying to understand and piece together this critical story. I mean, this again, I want to reiterate to our audience and say, why do you care so much about Europe? Well, I care about Europe because I care about people, but Europe is a massive economy. This is a huge risk to it, the global economy, and kind of sadly, America may end up benefiting. We'll talk about how in about 10 minutes on Sparkbox. All right, Brian, that's a great, that's a great tease for the rest of this, uh, your, your coverage for the day. Thank you very much. We'll see you later on this morning. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. As Brian noted, Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next with the Dow futures implying a very modest open. We'll see you tomorrow. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.